27th, 1994, 25 years ago last week, 20 million people in South Africa participated in free democratic elections that brought the African National Congress to power. Today, that country celebrates it as Freedom Day. It is the day that marked the end of apartheid and the beginning of a new era for both South Africa and for the world. As the ANC-led government brought Nelson Mandela essentially out of prison to presidency, South Africa became a global beacon of change, of new life, of resurrection. And amidst that transition, there was an important question. How would the nation address their scars? What could they do to respond to past violence and atrocities? A number of prominent leaders, including Archbishop Desmond Tutu, for whom we have one namesake here in the room, <laughs> came up with something novel, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In this court-like embodiment of restorative justice, both victims and perpetrators of violence and human rights violations were given the opportunity to speak publicly in the interest of establishing an honest record of the atrocities of apartheid. Perpetrators would give testimony and request amnesty from both criminal and civil prosecution. It is also important to remember that the commission heard cases of human rights violations from both the apartheid state and the liberation forces. Now, while they, all these testimonies were heard, those seeking amnesty would only be granted it if they complied in full disclosure. Full disclosure is a tall order. Of the 7,112 applicants for amnesty, only 849 were granted. Still, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission changed the course of history by providing a new example of restorative justice for showing us what forgiveness looks like on a national and global level. Today, Jesus gives us a model of restorative justice. He shows us what forgiveness looks like and what discipleship as a whole looks like. Now, occasionally I have given the John's Gospel a bad rap. <laughs> but this is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. There's so much jam-packed into this great little story that I know biblical historians think is an addition, and 
there's all that to it, but it's an incredible, incredible story. Maybe it's because of the camping and the fishing overtones. Maybe it's, maybe it's like this outdoorsman's dream of mine, cooking over an open fire, tons of fish. John says 153 large fish. (laughs) Sounds great. But the best part of this story is the intimacy. Jesus with Peter. Saying things only the two of them would completely understand. Three times, Simon Peter, do you love me? The third one is the third one that brings the light. It's the third one that's the tearjerker. It's the cock crow. Remember all that Peter denies Jesus three times, and here Jesus restores Peter's fidelity three times. It's truth and reconciliation at work, on a beachside, in Galilee, with friends and pastoral vistas and tons of food. It's beautiful. We love it. It's great, right? Then Jesus, oh, and Peter, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. Wait, what? (laughs) What? What's happening? This is what discipleship looks like. Abundance, reconciliation, beauty, but also pain, struggle, rejection, and going where we do not want to go. (laughs) Loving and accepting and risking for people we would rather not accept. The writers of the lectionary don't always get things right. Sometimes it feels like they're cramming things together, but they hit it out of the park with this pairing, the pairing of the passage from John with the complete road to Damascus passage from Acts. We know this story, right? We've heard this before. Saul, the guy who held everyone's coats while they stoned Stephen, this this persecutor of the disciples, goes to Damascus to round up some more Jesus followers. En route, he is blinded and converted. Paul tells this story himself in Galatians. But, but, As we tell this story, we often forget about Ananias. Some say Ananias, but Ananias, I think, is more on the accurate end. While Saul was struck blind on the road, Ananias Ananias was praying. He was a faithful man. And how how do we know that? Like, what what do we know? What do we see going on here? How do we know he was faithful? Because of the way in which he responds. Here I am. Hineni. Hineni. Some of you might remember that phrase from Leonard Cohen's, you want it darker. It's the phrase that every faithful person in the Hebrew Bible uses in response to the divine. Ananias is faithful and ready to do what God needs. He is ready 
until, until he hears what God says. Then Ananias is like, I, I don't know, God. Have you heard about this guy? Do you know? Do you know what he's done? Just in case God didn't get the memo, you know. <laughs> it's like, you, you know what this guy's about. But God gives Ananias a similar line that he gives to Peter. You will go where you do not want to go. He puts it this way. Go for he, Saul, is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. And then, without skipping a beat, God adds, I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. (laughs) Saul, too, will have to suffer. He'll have to go where he does not want to go. Faith, trust, the God-love life inherently leads us beyond ourselves, out of our comfort zone. Mystics might articulate this as the dissolution of the ego and the discovery of the capital S, self in the context of the infinite. Recovery communities might describe this process as acknowledging a higher power and surrendering control to that higher power. However you articulate it, trusting God is challenging. Seeking love eternal is not easy every moment. It will take you where you do not want to go. Two weeks ago, um, we were kicking around as a family, going all around town and, you know, going to birthday parties and whatever. And, and Jimmy, our three-year-old, passed, passed out in the, in the backseat. So we, we dropped off Mary Beth and the other kids. And uh, Jimmy and I made a little run over to the Goodwill to drop off, you know, the things that had been accumulating as we were preparing in our, in our uh, spring cleaning so, I'm, so I've got my little little son in the backseat, and I'm driving down the road, and just as I'm like going downtown, this truck like rears in front of me, and and just it like almost hits us, and, and and then pulls off, and then proceeds to drive like 12 miles per hour, <laughs> and and of course, of course, I judgmental me see that there are three Trump stickers, three. Three Trump bumper stickers on the back of this truck. And I'm like, oh, no compassion for me. <laughs> you know, at that moment, I, I could not, like, try to understand this person as my divine sibling, you know. <laughs> I was not about to go there. Not wanting to go there has always been part of the God-love life. It is that reluctance of Jonah who bought a ticket to cross the Mediterranean instead of <laughs> declaring God's mercy to Nineveh, right? Get me out of here. I do not want to go there. While many of us admire the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there's still folks who feel that the redemptive qualities denied justice. In the early 2000s, those who resisted forgiveness took the TRC to court in both South Africa and in the United States. It is not easy having faith, having living on the boundaries of love. It leads us where we do not want to go. As many of you know, 
one of the most rewarding times in my faith life was when I spent a year bicycling around the country, engaging Christian communities in dialogue about climate change. I called it a carbon Sabbath, one year without flying or driving. You remember this, right? Full disclosure about that. I was terrified. Terrified. I was excited to go like ride through the country and like go through all the national parks. All that sounded great. I'm very excited about that, especially after three years of grad school. But I was not excited to cycle through the middle of the country. <laughs> I feared for my safety, and I, I was afraid for the conversations, for the for the confrontation I would have. I didn't want to have those hard conversations. I thought I knew how they would go. Someone who'd been spoon-fed climate denial would come to me and I would spout some rehearsed statistics, hard facts, and then we'd butt heads, and then I'd write off. Something like that. I don't know. I was afraid of people who thought and lived differently than me. But thanks be to God, I went... And it brought me new life. It brought me a new life in which I could live into that baptismal covenant from the Book of Common Prayer. I learned how to respect the dignity of every human being. And that respect, that dignity, brought me new life. That is discipleship. There's abundance, there's forgiveness, but there is death. Death of who we have been for the sake of what we will be. Death followed by new life, followed by resurrection. As we move through this Easter season, we learn what it looks like to participate in the resurrection of Christ, to seek full disclosure, to know truth and reconciliation. There are so many sheep waiting waiting to be fed, waiting for new life. And we have everything we need to feed them and to feed us. If we follow love where we do not want to go. Amen. Amen.